All right, Jesse, what do you got for me? Lust and greed lead to a karmic comeuppance that turns deadly in disco-era Chicago. I'm Jesse Prey, and I'm Andy Cassette, and this is Love Murder. Okay, welcome to our first episode of Love Murder. Uh, I'm Jesse Prey. This is my co-host, Andy Cassette. Hello. Hi, and we are coming to you from two corners of the United States. I am up in the Hudson Valley, New York area in a very rural area, and Andy is in L.A. I am. But one thing that we are both doing at this moment <laughs> is drinking wine. That is true. So cheers. So uh, like we said, this is our first episode. We're really excited to bring you Love Murder. The idea came from crimes of passion and how they inspire and inflame every single one of us. Ooh. <laughs> inflame. <laughs> inflame. And fuego. So Andy and I have always loved talking about murder. It's something we've done our whole life. We're really just two best friends who like talking about <laughs> murder of all kinds. And and really, like, we're not comedians. We are not journalists, as you'll see. Um, we're just people who love a good story. And I don't think that there's any better story than the intersection of lust and love and murder. Yeah, it really does seem like it could just happen to anyone, which I think is what part of the intrigue is. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely terrifying. I mean, think about some of the relationships you've been in, some of the ones you know <laughs> I've been in. It, it, it's like we're all just one bad relationship away from getting murdered. Yeah. So be careful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, Andy, I am so excited to tell you our very first story of love, lust, and murder. And this is the ballad of the car stereo king of Chicago. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> or we're going to have like our sexy, sexy 70s tune. That's that's what we need. We need a 70s tune there. Also, cool. I should say where I was inspired and where my sources are, um, you kind of actually did a little scorned Love Kills riff there, which really worked because oh, wow. I was inspired. Yeah. It's like, darn or no. <laughs> scorned Love Kills is an investigation discovery channel that aired in the early 2000s or maybe mid-2000s. Um, I love it. It's like the cheesy best show in the entire world. I recommend it highly if you are high. So <laughs> higher if you're high. <laughs> and it's the best thing ever. So that's where I found this case. Um, I also got information from Murderpedia, um, which featured articles by John Gorman of the Chicago Tribune, and Chuck Hustmeyer of TrueTV.com. Um, so that's the entirety of where I got my information. Nice. So let's jump right in. Let's do it. Okay, so set the scene. It's early 60s, Chicago. 1960s? <laughs> well, but not the 2060s. <laughs> it's futuristic. <laughs> No, it's not the 1860s, although I'd love to do a case from the 1860s. I think, I think we'll definitely find one for sure. Oh, gosh. Frontier murder? Mm, so, <laughs> so 
early 1960s, German immigrant Werner Hartmann moves to Chicago to pursue the American dream. So he's 19 years old, and in 1964, he's selling magazines door to door, and he's doing this to make ends meet. He's really scrappy. He'll take whatever opportunity he can get, and he meets a beautiful brunette waitress named Vasiliki, and she goes by the nickname Vasi. So they quickly get together, they date, they fall in love. Um, They're both extremely hardworking. They scrap together a future by selling odds and ends, like cigarette lighters at flea markets. They basically will do anything to survive. They get married and they end up having uh, two daughters in quick succession, um, Stephanie and Ava. So at this point, Werner's like, this is not, I'm hardworking, but I'm not working smart enough. I need to make more money for my family. I think as most people get to, especially when they have young babies, you know? And do you know where they live in Chicago? Because you know. I don't. I know. Yes. Someone is from Chicago here. They're downtown now, okay. but they do move to a suburb, which Amazing. I'm really excited to talk to you about. Okay. So how old were you when you lived in Chicago? <clears throat> I lived there from when I was one to um, 15. So I lived there for a long time, but we lived in the suburbs. Wow. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, so when I get to the suburb, you'll probably know where we're talking about. I okay. also really like it when I give you a chance to talk because I can take a big gulp of my wine. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to get so much more wasted than me because I'm going to be talking this whole time. Yes. Yes. This definitely works in my favor. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, they're right now in downtown Chicago and in the early 70s, Werner finds out that he has a talent for electronics. Um, Specifically, he's really good at working with um, and installing car stereos. And at this point in the very early 70s, I mean, this is kind of the height of technology. I mean, you have these sexy cars, you know, you think about those muscle cars of like the late 60s, the early 70s, and finding the perfect car stereo that goes with all of that. It's kind of pretty technically interesting and sexy. Yeah, you've got all the Yeah, like with a really sick system, Mm -hmm. like it's super hot. So he like hits on something that he's really good at and they basically pool all of their money and resources together to start a business. So he starts the Chicago Music Corporation, um, which is a car audio store. And him and Vasi basically pour everything they have into this store. Um, Since I said they were both extremely hardworking, um, she ends up being their bookkeeper, their accountant, the office manager. She does basically everything. She pays the bills. She keeps the lights on. And he's the one who actually installs the car stereos and he orders all the parts. And he's the one who really has the knack for it. They're like a pretty dynamic duo. Absolutely. They're a perfect couple. They both are just incredibly hardworking and interested in making a future for themselves. They also have like two little kids running around the storefront, you know. Did anyone in the community or the neighborhood like have any thoughts or opinions on them? Like They were well known and like regarded as like a very sweet family. And no one could say a bad word about them because they just had such incredible work ethic. Okay. So at this point, um, he's like really working like 14 hour days and they don't have like a car bay where you can actually like pull the uh, car into the store and like work on it there. So he's like out in the Chicago winter installing these car stereo systems. Like like in his coat and gloves and like he's willing to do anything to make this successful. So by 1977, all of his hard work pays off um, because he is now a millionaire. Stop it. So at this point, they buy a mansion in Northbrook. Oh no. Do you know where that is? I don't know where that is. <laughs> <laughs> I was so excited. 
I was like, what is something that everybody can understand about a Chicago suburb? Just imagine the home alone house. Yeah. So that's where Werner went. Yeah. So Werner buys this house. It's his pride and joy. It's like this mansion. It just really shows that he's made it. I mean, he's gone from tiny apartment with his family to the whole family lived above the store in a tiny apartment. And now he can afford this like mansion and he's an immigrant and he's like, you know, rubbing elbows with all the, the richest in Chicago at this point. So at this point, he has like everything he's wanted and achieved, and he kind of starts having a midlife crisis. I know. It's like, Bossy, it's so great. How can you do this? So I think for him, it was a lot of he had been struggling and working since his teens. Bossy was pretty much his only like real relationship. He had never dated around. He had been working so hard for so long that I think he got this taste of success. And all of a sudden he's like, wait. I haven't had any fun for my entire life. I was like, wow, like 30, he's like 32 at this point. And I was like, this seems very early for a midlife crisis, but I did look up the life expectancy <laughs> you were say that. Okay. <laughs> for men in 1977, it was 69 and a half years. So he was not far off. Holy he was shit. Actually- that is so young. That's so young. Like I can't, I can't even imagine it. We definitely know a few people who have had midlife crises in their like (laughs) thirties at this point in time, right? Like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that like millennials really took it up a notch. We just have a crisis like every 15 years. (laughs) So he's getting uh, attention from women for the first time. And he's not, he's not a bad looking guy, but he's not like the typical big buff alpha male. He's only 5'5". He only weighs 130 pounds. Okay, cool. So at this point, he's got his work kind of all settled out. He's, you know, employed all these people who are now doing his work. He doesn't really have to be there as much. And he starts just like hitting up these like seedy strip clubs on the west side of Chicago like day and night. (laughs) I know. I mean, hey, if you've got the money, you got the time. So John Gorman of the Tribune said there was a whole strip of nightclubs with exotic dancers and thinly veiled whorehouses on the western side of Chicago. And he was frequenting all of them. Okay, so he's, like, going in. I guess, I mean, like, listen. He's going real wild. If you have only, like, dated and probably, I mean, maybe back then. He probably only slept with Bossy, yeah. Yeah, come on. And then you've got two kids. I mean, how old are they now? They're, like, maybe preteen-ish almost. Okay. Um, But, yeah, but they're, like, under 11, I think, at this point. Okay. Yeah. He's been doing this for a while. It's like, and they've been together for basically their entire, I mean, he met her when he was 19. So they've been together for their entire twenties and he's 32. So it's been, it's been a minute, you know? Yeah. So he's going out all night. He's coming home late. He's like doing God knows what there's, you know, no hard evidence that he's like cheating on Vasi. But I also think men sometimes don't consider transactional uh, sex work to be cheating sometimes if they're paying for it. And it sounds like that's a lot of what was going on here potentially. It's like the end of the 70s too. So what a wild time. I mean, we're talking like discos and cocaine and free love. I mean, free love was kind of before, but it definitely kept going. <laughs> so he's partying as well. Yeah, he's partying. There's no evidence that he did any like hard drugs or anything, but he was definitely drinking way more and going out way more. And the number one thing he was addicted to was attention from women. That's <laughs> He's got to go to rehab for attention. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, I, I probably should have in my 20s. I was very attention-seeking. 
<laughs> you remember. You were there. You lived um, it. Okay. That's okay. So the, I've got a picture. Yeah. This is what he's doing. Um, Vasi's holding down the fort. She's at work all day just running the place. And then she's home with their daughters like every night. And she's waiting up for him. And she's had it. So he basically comes clean to her like about his partying and about that he's going to strip clubs and everything. And he doesn't really want to stop. So they decide to, to go through with this. And Vasi moves to Florida with the girls and leaves Werner in Chicago to do whatever the fuck he wants. So he becomes a big regular at this place called the Smoking Lounge, um, which is a strip club. And this is where he meets the gorgeous 24-year-old, beautiful, blonde, petite Deborah Stover. So what we have to take away from this is that he really likes petite women. Yeah, I mean, but like he's five five. He kind of doesn't have a choice. <laughs> like, although I'd love it if he was like five five, and he's like, "I'm gonna climb you like a tree." Yeah, and she's that like, would... "Cool, get up in my treehouse." Okay, so she, so he meets, he meets a woman at strip club. <laughs> strip club. Yes, it, is, it is a gentleman's club. So, anyways, he meets this girl. She's 24. She's an exotic dancer at the club. Oh. She's sexy. She's really fun. She's exciting. Um, he's immediately taken with her. And so of course. Very- I mean, as are all men at yes. strip clubs, right? At strip clubs, yes. <laughs> the very first night they go to the champagne room or the VIP lounge. He pays $75 for this privilege, which is $317 today. And by all accounts, he comes out a transformed man. Power of the pussy, y'all. <laughs> Um, he comes out and he's like bananas about her. And, you know, she had a really, really hard upbringing and, uh, you know, she had to leave the house at 15. Her father was abusive and an alcoholic and he beat her siblings and her mother and her. I know. So this poor baby left the house and like was trying to be a model and a dance instructor. She's very like lithe and she's tiny and she was actually a really good dancer. Um, but of course, when you're a teenager on the streets with no education, you end up falling into the world of CD strip clubs, you know? She's had a hard time of it. And he's 35 now at this point. She's 24. I think he falls in love with her spirit. He falls in love with who she is. But he also Aww, feels Jessie, very- Jesse, that was so sweet. Yeah, she's like a highly spirited, fun, spunky girl. Like, that's the energy he wants in his life. So they immediately start seeing each other. Like, he's showing up to the club all the time to hang out with her. And then that moves from, like, into a serious, like, sleeping together and dating situation and away from the club. Like, he is totally smitten. And at this point, he he rushes his divorce to get – it over with with Fosse and he's really moving forward with a serious relationship with this girl I mean he she has him wrapped around her finger okay that was my question was where is she at in this like I feel like a lot of the times guys of course fall head over heels for these beautiful you know girls she's definitely into it for the security for the financial security for the way he makes her feel um she said to numerous people and supposedly she was even straight up with Werner himself uh that she was in it for the financial security that you know she wasn't in it for the car stereo popper she was there for the car stereo king (laughs) got it okay so the car stereo king's money Money. She was okay. in it for the money and she was very straight up with him about how she wanted to be treated, about what he had to do and had to give to her to woo her. So now he's at her request showering her with jewelry, designer clothes, bags. He even buys her a Rolls Royce. 
So she stops working at the club, of course. And as soon as they can get legally married, um, they get married and she moves into the Northbrook mansion and basically treats him like a winning lottery ticket. I mean, she even refers to him as a winning lottery ticket at this point. Wow. That is wild. Okay. His uh, his daughters didn't really spend that much time with Debbie, and the time that they did spend with her when they met her on visits, they didn't really like her. Yeah, you know, that's uh, probably for the best. <laughs> yeah, they called her Miss Showcase, apparently, because not only was she, like, the trophy wife, the trophy in the showcase, but she also liked to wear all of her furs and her diamonds and really showcase their wealth. Wow, she was doing it. She was really showing up. Like like a lady rapper with all her stuff, man. And Werner, did he like this? He just wanted to make her happy. So I think at this point, he was really feeling on the top of his game. He was really feeling like he was doing so well. I mean, he was making – his company was valued at over $4 million. I think that he really thought he had the money to – I don't think he was worried about it at this point. And he thought he could make more and he could expand. So he wasn't concerned. Yeah, but did he not remember that his wife was the one that was like handling all the shit for him? Yeah. So this is goes perfectly into the next segment. So he wants exactly what he had with Vossi, only fun and sexy and young, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And do you think so that Deborah want, could manage the book? Well, you're jumping the gun because I'm like, (laughs) did I guess it? You're guessing it. Yes. Yes. He brings her into the store and he wants her to do all the things that Vasi did. And she's, of course, a, a nightmare at the books. But I was going to say, is she wearing like her fur coat to the office? Oh, she's wearing her like tight clothes. She's wearing her jewelry. She's wearing everything. And she is also really, really good at sales. Okay. Well, obviously, so, it's probably all yeah, dudes coming in there to get their stereos. Our stereo systems. Yeah. Of course, it's all dudes. She is crushing it. So, Werner's like, I made the best decision fucking ever. Look at this girl. That's my wife. And she's also fucking crushing it. And she's hot. And we have amazing sex. And he's like ecstatic. So, for this is like good for like only months, <laughs> like only a few months. Because at some point she's gets really bored of having a nine to five, of having to stay home at night, of, you know, she doesn't want to be friends with any of the women in the suburb who are moms. She doesn't want to have kids. She doesn't really want to be a stepmom, which she doesn't have to because the kids are in Florida. Like she wanted the security and she wanted to not have to dance at the club, but she doesn't want to have the responsibility that comes with being his partner. She just wants to like have the money and the nice things and like fuck off and party, right? Okay, so is she still dancing and partying during this? No. So she's not like dancing professionally, but she's going out like she's only 27 years old at this point. So she starts going out every single night and she when she starts going out she goes out wild like she's going out until like four and five in the morning she's doing drugs she is like partying with people she's picking up tabs because she has Warner's money yeah which is like kind of amazing because this is what he did to his (laughs) wife it was basically like us when we were bartending in Boston and we had like a ton of money and no responsibility only she has a husband (laughs) yeah who's paying for all of it anyway so so she's going out every night and she is like real wild like way way more than we ever were she is like reportedly caught by the police one time when her rolls rice is barreling through downtown chicago and she's throwing champagne glasses out the driver's side window 
Okay, so before you said that, I was going to ask you if, like, the smallest part of you actually wanted to party with Deborah, but that's, like, taking it to the next level. Like, I don't really want to hurt anyone with a champagne bottle. No, I think it would have been really fun for a while. Like, honestly, I probably still would have even been in the car with her, like, throwing out the champagne glasses. But when they pull her over, they find her with a well-known Chicago drug lord, and there's a gun underneath her seat. What? Yeah, so she's, like, whatever she's getting into in these after hours, like, she is hanging with bad people now man that always ends up being such a bummer when you're like out partying and then you realize that it's like not fun anymore yeah exactly it's like (laughs) oh no i thought he was a nice guy he bought me a champagne and now it turns out he's a drug lord (laughs) it's a real damper on our relationship real damper on the night this only gets worse for werner i really like that alliteration that you did there worse for werner it's like if this was like a late 70s, early 80s sitcom would be like, worse for Werner. (laughs) 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 So she she ends up, she's working at the store. So this guy comes in, it's John Corbick, and he is freaking sexy. So this guy is like three years younger than her. So I think he's like, has to be in his like mid-20s at this point. And he is by all accounts an Adonis. He is 6'3". He's completely ripped. He's a tennis pro. Yeah, he is hot F. Like, like everybody's like, this is just a guy who is everybody knows is sexy as fuck. Uh-oh. And so he comes in to get a car stereo system and he meets her and he's like, mm, maybe I'll take that instead. Do they fuck in the bathroom? I mean, in our heads they can. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine it. We can all stop and imagine it for a second. Perfect. Um, perfect. Because they do start fucking almost immediately after. So I don't know. It could have been that day. So they start this tour de fair and he's really fun because he's young and they're partying and they're partying on Warner's dime, of course, because she's like using all of this money. Um, and is Warner just like going home and going to bed at night? Yeah, but he's like really, he's been upset for a while about this, but then he gets extra upset because um, he knows that something is up with specifically this John guy because employees in the store are telling him about this guy. He knows that he's hanging around. He knows he's been going out at night with Debbie. So he knows that like, Maybe she's been out partying before, but now it's really getting turned up a notch and she seems to be specifically seeing this one guy over and over again. So one night at 4 a.m., she's like completely wasted and she comes in wearing a mink coat that Werner had bought her and literally nothing else. She is butt ass naked and she comes home and he's like actually waiting up for her and he's like, I know you're with John and kind of like, fuck you. And and she's like, you're boring. And I'm like, how the tables have turned. Yeah. Cause remember, he was coming home late on Vossi. It's like, yeah. karma, karma, dude. So he gets fucking angry. He gets really, really fucking angry. We don't know for sure what she said, but like it was derogatory and mean. And he goes and gets a shotgun. So he gets the shotgun and he is threatening her. And he's like starts shooting at the door, like where she is at the entryway. And like, it's not clear whether he was trying to scare her or whether he was like actually trying to hit her. But she escapes and she leaves and she gets in her Rolls Royce and she like peels the fuck out, like still naked in her mink coat and survives. Okay. Yeah. So this relationship is getting really bad. She also told other people that he was abusive towards her, like he had hit her before and stuff. We don't have real confirmation he was never convicted of any crimes like she never even uh brought him to the police or anything there was no charges filed so 
because we don't know. These are all just rumors and allegations. So we have no idea whether he really hit her, but by both of their accounts, he did threaten her with a shotgun. I mean, if a girl shows up at the police station wearing just a mink coat (laughs) saying that she was just shot at, like... I think she's going to get some attention. Yeah. 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 So so basically at this point, they are in just the purgatory worst part of their relationship. It's like, you know, we've obviously never been in relationships this bad. But when you know you're like at the end and you're like, why did I even get into this relationship? I can't believe I'm with this psychopath. I made such a mistake. I'm so embarrassed. And you just want it to be over. Yeah. And how the fuck do I get out? How the fuck do I get out? And it's even worse for Werner. This is going to be like his second divorce within four years. At least back then they didn't have to worry about social media though. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, I think he still has a reputation in this town and people were like, you know, did not like it when he replaced Fosse with this bimbo. So like he, he has failed spectacularly in the eyes of his peers, you know, she's like devastated. He's devastated. I think she thought she could control him. And now that he's like firing guns at her or maybe even hitting her, she's like, fuck, I can't control him. He's realizing he can't control her. He looks like an asshole. So by Christmas of 1981, he's like, this is, this was a fucking nightmare mistake. Like she is basically almost moved in with John Corbett. Like she's barely home. She's not working at the store anymore. Um, He's lost his family. He like, like gave up Bossy. So he calls Bossy and he's like, I don't know what's going on with my business. Like, I I think she's run it into the ground. Um, She spent so much money. I was going to say, is she doing the books as well? I think she was still doing the books at this point. Wow. Um, I don't know really how much she was actually working to partying and who else they had employed, but but she had control over the money still. So he calls Vasi at Christmas. He's alone. He misses his kids. He's like, I done fucked up. Isn't that so sad when you like grass is greener and like, then you fuck up? It is. He just like, he's like, he didn't know what he had till it was gone. Yep. I mean, classic Vasi, tale. Classic manberry sauce. <laughs> This is classic, classic. So Vasi is like still loves him and is sweet. And she's like, look, I'm not going to take you back. I'm still really hurt about what happened. But like, you know, her livelihood is tied to the success of the, the stereo business. So she's like, I'll come back. I'll let the girls like live with you and spend time with you now that it seems like Debbie's out of the picture. And I will live in the apartment above the store and I will figure everything the fuck out. I'm going to get everything straightened out. We'll get the store back on track and like everything's going to be okay. Don't worry. I'm coming to take care of it. Okay. That's wild that she's that cool. She is so cool. And like, I understand that, you know, she was also protecting her own interests, but like that is unbelievably big of her and very forgiving. She like, if I were her, I would simply be like, you know what? You fucked me over. You fucked up. You made your bed. Now you have to lie in it. And she's like, let me come and make the bed, you know? So officially Deborah moves out in January of 1982 and that's when Vossi comes back. And so now this is so crazy. She moves in with John Korbeck who lives with his parents. So oh, he does. <laughs> yeah, so she he went. lives with his parents. <laughs> she went. Like, how funny is this? She went from living in a mansion, like that she was like the missus of, to living in a house with her lover. Who's I feel in- like this story can't, like, how, where is this going to go wrong? Because I feel like everything, like karma has like the karma fairy has literally sprinkled its little karma jizz all over everyone i like that karma jizz <laughs> karma jizz um yeah so the karma jizz is everywhere it was yeah. it was an orgy of yes 
<laughs> it's just bukkake of harmony <laughs> is what's going on here. Oh um, so yeah, so she's now living with her lover, her like 20-something lover's parents. Oh. And, and all of a sudden kind of realizing like, Ooh, I kind of fucked up. I should have yeah. maybe worked the situation differently. So Vossi comes in and she looks at the books and she's like, you're fucking bankrupt, dude. You, She has like taken money. She's bought things from the store for herself. Like she is buying fur coats and diamond necklaces. And she's like, she spent like over 200 grand on things for herself, which is like a shite ton in 1977. Yeah, but I feel like it could have been more. Yeah, I think she was doing it like little by little. Yeah. So Vasi is basically like, if you want me to stick around, you want me to figure everything out, you have to divorce her and staunch the bleeding. Because like she still has like credit cards. She still has like, you know, his checkbooks. Like she has like, she has... Um, ability to get into some of his accounts. And so, and Fossey's like, fuck this. Like, yeah, if, if they're married, help, I mean, that's how married. it is. She's legally, <laughs> she has a legal right to half of all of his shit. So Vasi's like, you you just have to end this. And he's like, I know, like, I'm throwing in the towel. I got to cut my losses. It's time. So he's moving forward. He like tells Debbie he wants a divorce. And she's kind of like, okay, I don't know how much I'm going to get from this because she's spent so much of his money already, you know? And he 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 starts, like, freezing her out of accounts based on, like, what Vossi's doing. They're switching over accounts. They're making it very, very hard for her to access the money now. And so she's like, okay, fuck this shit. So she has a meeting with a divorce attorney, like, spring of 1982, and later cancels a second meeting. So this attorney says that she was really interested in, like, protecting her assets during this divorce and seeing, like, what she could get. Um, but it wasn't looking overly promising for her. So she like kind of just canceled their second meeting and he didn't hear from her again. Okay. So meanwhile, now um, Werner is telling people that Deborah reached out to him and wants to arrange this meeting uh, with him at his home in like the summer of 1982. And she is like being really nice. And she's saying like, I understand that I fucked up. We both fucked up. Things were like went wrong in our relationship. But I, yeah, I remember when you held me at gunpoint. Yes. Like she's saying, we both were wrong. Like you hurt me. I hurt you. Um, let's just try to end this like as amicably as we can. Cause we've been in this for like four something years and we do care about each other. And so he's like, and like oh, care wow. about each other means care about my wallet. <laughs> yes, exactly. So he's like, this might end okay. He's like, this might like, it's not going to be great, but like if they get, he thought maybe she was so unreasonable, it was going to be this terrible divorce and it was going to be like in the publicity and he was going to lose even more of the money he doesn't have. Instead, she seems like she really wants to approach it from a positive place. And she's like, I just want to go and like kind of hammer out the agreement with you. We don't have to involve lawyers. Like, let's just have a nice talk. And like, I won't take any part of your business. I just want to make sure I'm okay. And I'm like set up with an apartment and everything, you know? So he, she's not with John anymore. He's not, she's not with little Johnny. No, she's like still with him. Um, but like I don't think she wants to be like living in his parents' house anymore, you know? Like in the basement. <laughs> so so he agrees, he's really looking forward to this. Like, um, Vasi knows that they're getting together, like he's told people that she's coming over to negotiate the divorce. And so, um, so she's supposedly going over for this meeting and everybody knows about it. So I'm going to Fast forward to when a body is found. Wait, what? Are you ready? Wait, there has to be a mystery element here. Wait, uh, don't worry. 
I'm telling it to you in a certain strategic way so we can have a fun guessing game, okay? Okay, fine, fine, fine. I want everyone at home or at work or running or the gym or wherever you listen to podcasts to guess whose body is found. So we are going to fast forward to pre-dawn June 9th, 1982, which is now just a little more than 38 years ago. Okay. A naked body is found riddled with bullets in Werner's home in Northbrook. Do you think it's Werner or Deborah? I think it's Werner. Ding, 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 ding. Wait, am I okay. right? You're right about Werner. So- Okay, so Deborah is alive, but she has a solid alibi for how she could not have possibly killed Werner. She spent the evening after they talked with Vasi. So basically, what happens? We know now that Werner's dead. So we're going to go on what Deborah says happened that night. So according to Deborah, they meet at Werner's house in Northbrook and they settle things and it's going extremely well. It's very peaceful. It's the nicest they've been together for a long time. She says that she'll give up her right to any of the profits from the store as long as he gives her a sizable settlement so she can, you know, get herself a nice apartment and get herself settled before she has to figure out what she's going to do for work again. Um, and at the end of it, they they part so peacefully that like he tells her he's like you know he's kind of flirty and says he's gonna get in the shower and like they wink at each other she even gives him like a little pinch on the butt and then she leaves because she wants to get some dinner so they say goodbye they're feeling really good about where they are and on her way back into Chicago from Northbrook she stops into a restaurant to eat and lo and behold who does she run into but Vasi and her younger daughter Ava and now historically, obviously, these women haven't gotten along, but Deborah kind of like is very funny that evening and she like bursts in and she's like, hi guys. And she's like making jokes about how they're like the two ex-wives of Werner and like how like they're going to have to get along now. And I think Vasi might have been so relieved that they were going forward with the divorce that she's really accepting of like her company at this point. Yeah, but is and this all on film? So no, I mean, they were definitely together. I don't like. Yeah, together murdering him. Um, well, they're, they have an alibi because they're together at this point, and they're also with his daughter who has no reason to lie about anything. So, okay, fine. Yeah, so I'll take it. I'll accept it. Yeah, so there's we don't know at any point. We can assume that Deborah has ill will, but, like, we, we don't actually assume that Vossi or um, Ava are involved in it at this point. I mean, they could be. Um, so they end up having so much fun, which is kind of bizarre too. What kind of restaurant are they at? In my mind, it's like casual Italian. <laughs> Literally what I was thinking, like red candle shit. Yes, exactly. I was thinking like the checkered tablecloth, like, the candle in the Chianti bottle. Deep dish I'll pizza. Your, yes, of course. I know we'll have your house Chianti, please. Oh my God. That hit the nail on the head. So that's where they were pretty much. Yes. Okay. I mean, I don't know that for sure, but I think that's the the scene we want to set. Yeah. And they end up having so much fun. So this also doesn't make any sense to me because they are having so much fun. Apparently, they go out and get drinks afterwards and then they go to a disco, which they have a 14-year-old girl with them. And it's like really late at night. And at that point, Deborah is like, oh, it's okay. I'll make sure she gets home safe. I'll take her home. And they've been having fun all night. So Vasi's like, sure, whatever. So by the time... They pull into the Northbrook house. 
it is 4.30 in the morning and Ava's really worried that her dad is going to be really pissed at her, which is understandable because she's 14 and she's been out all night, you know? Of course. And so she's like, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to like try to run up like straight to my room so he doesn't hear me. And Deborah's like, oh, don't worry. Like, I, I'm just going to go in and check on him because we had such a good conversation earlier, which is kind of weird. Like they're getting a divorce and now she's like coming up to his, you know, room. But like, Eva's like, okay, whatever. You know, she's been out all night. So she just wants to get in. And when they come in the house, everything's kind of eerily quiet, except for there's some uh, classical music playing. Weird. And yeah, and Ava's like, this is really weird. Why is my dad playing classical music at 4.30 in the morning? And she's like trying to like get up to her bedroom. And she's just like, okay, I'm going to go to bed. And Deborah's like, okay, I'm going to go talk to your dad. And Deborah goes into his room and she starts screaming. So she's like screaming her head off. And then she runs out and she like grabs Ava. And she's like, you have to come see this. Your father, your father, your father. She pulled the girl in there? This is so fucked up. She pulls the 14-year-old daughter into the bedroom where she sees her father's nude corpse like why on earth would you do that yeah your that girl's life is ruined yeah like there's as an adult person if that happened to me I would like run out I'd be like you need to go outside you need to go to your room you need to not come in here I'd be like at all costs I would be like I I, you need to call 911 and stand outside like you can't come in this room you know what like every normal person would do that right okay so what happens next so of course Ava's completely traumatized she's like doesn't know if her father's dead although it, it seems like he is there's blood everywhere he's obviously been shot basically it's just like the most horrible thing ever so Ava is like okay, we need to call the police. We need to call an ambulance. Like she still wants to believe her father's alive, obviously. And Deborah's like, no, he's dead. We have to, let's just go to the police. And so for some reason, instead of- Calling like, 911. Calling 911 and having the, the police and the ambulance come to them, she insists on like driving her to the police station. And so Ava thinks it's really weird, but like she insists. And so she's like, I, and she's I don't know. 14. So, like, what is she going to do? And she's in shock. Yeah. So since they go to the police station and they're like, um, and Deborah tells the officers that her husband was found dead of a suicide. What? Yeah. He shot multiple, multiple times. So, and I, when I tell you exactly about how he was shot, you're going to lose your mind. So. <laughs> The police immediately are dispatched to the Northbrook home where it becomes very obvious that he didn't kill himself unless he somehow managed to shoot himself 14 times. 14 times? Mm-hmm. He is laying face up naked and it appears he was ambushed after the shower and executed. He has 14 bullet wounds overall and he has five to his face, a left cheek, right eye, the edge of his mouth, right side of his jaw, and one straight between his eyes. How his does a five foot five man even have five bullet wounds to the face? How is your it's face big insane. enough to have five? My face is definitely not big enough. Like I have a small, I have, no. I have, have a, a tiny little, tiny I have little a face. very small face. Like there's no way my face could take five bullets. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe, I mean, he must've just been torn open. I can't imagine what his poor daughter saw. No, I mean, that's so fucked up. It's, it's beyond. And so then the rest of the bullets went into his chest. I mean, so the, I mean, the good news, bad news is that he obviously died extremely quickly. I mean, nobody could have, the, they, the coroner doesn't no think suffering. Yeah. Alive. No suffering. I mean, he was, he was dead pretty much instantly. They also 
um, find that the the weapon and the bullets are correspond to a Mac 10, which is a machine pistol. It happened so quickly. Like those shots were fired within seconds. So what is that? Like a mob style gun? Yeah, kind of. It's like it's like a military grade like machine gun type thing. Only it's a pistol, so it's like you can do it one handed, I think. So they they're so the cops are uncovering all of this at the scene and they're holding Ava and Deborah, of course, because Deborah has to be the first suspect. I mean, she's the soon to be estranged wife, you know, and well, Ava is like hysterical and alert and, you know, she's calling her mother and she's like freaked out and she's like still in shock. Um, Deborah ends up just like curling up on the floor of the detective's office and taking a nap. What? Yeah. So the officers are like, this is really weird. Like any normal person who found their husband, even if you were getting a divorce, completely massacred in your home would be so shook that she should be like freaking out right now. And instead she's like, I'm exhausted and takes a nap. Okay. Yeah. So officers are like, this is really fucking suspicious. We don't like this. Honestly, she was probably just like, okay, I pulled it off. She probably had been nervous all night. Yeah. Expending her energy from that. Exactly. And then she just crashed. Like as soon as she was like, okay, I did my part. I'm fucking done. You know, she made sure that like Ava was with her for every step of the way, even seeing the body. And then she was just like, okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm like done all of that like energy and adrenaline was going through my body and now I'm, I'm done, you know? So uh, basically at this point, they like are holding Deborah cause they know something's fucked up about the situation. At the least they know that. Friends. Yeah. And you know, obviously Ava's telling them that they had a contentious relationship and they were in the middle of divorce proceedings. Like they were about to figure everything out. So they know that this was the ending of a relationship and Obviously, Deborah had the best motive. Like either he was leaving her and she was a woman scorned, or obviously there's a huge financial incentive in her killing him before he divorces her, you know? The fact that she went in and was like, my husband's been shot when they already had the divorce talk. Yes. Well, she was like, my my husband committed suicide, which makes me think, and I'll get to who the potential trigger men are later, but like, it makes me think that it was supposed to be something that looked more like a suicide. Like he was so devastated over the divorce or something that he killed himself but instead they brought a machine gun and it just went off and like hit him a million times i mean listen it's at chicago in the early 80s like there were mobs and shit in chicago no yeah of course i mean there was always mobs in chicago and actually there is a mob tie-in to the story a little later so both of the exes obviously have alibis uh they find out about john her lover but he has an alibi as well he was at a friend's house so he has an alibi. Both of the exes have an alibi. You know who yeah. I picture him as is one of like the Hemsworth. Oh, like the younger one, the one that married Miley Cyrus. A hundred percent. Like sweet. I, I think Liam is so sweet looking with his little puppy dog eyes. I, yeah, I didn't even know that was body. his name. But like that's, I'm just like talking for picture. Like that's like the who yeah, I picture. I think and that's that, a really good idea of like what to picture. Yeah. And I don't like see him going in with like a automatic rifle handgun weapon. Well, okay, so one thing I didn't mention, though, is that, and I actually didn't find this out. This wasn't in Scorn Love Kills, but after I did some research, I found out that John was a tennis pro, but he also worked part-time at a gun store. Okay. So he has some familiarity with these weapons. 
if that changes your mind. Yeah, I mean, that's, like, huge. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, other than the fact that almost everything goes to Deborah, so she has the most financial motive, there's not a lot for the police to go on. Got it. Okay. They know the type of weapon that's used because they've collected the bullets. It looks like he was ambushed. And then he was quickly mowed down, and it was done in a downward fashion. So he was on the ground very quickly because a lot of the bullets were lodged in the floor. <clears throat> it was basically like he was ambushed, and the person was above him. So the person was potentially taller than him. And Well, that's not that hard. And then he... <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and and then came from an upward angle and he fell to the floor and the last few bullets were went like through him into the floorboards. Got it. Okay. So they find out that he had three different life insurance policies. It always comes down to the life insurance policy. Oh, yeah. Be very scared if your spouse has a life insurance policy on yes, you. Yes, 100%. So, yeah. So, he has he has three different life insurance policies. And one of them is $150,000, but it's double indemnity, which means that if it would pay out $150,000 unless he dies of not natural causes. And then the the, the beneficiary gets double. So she'd get 300000 instead of one hundred and fifty. Yep. So is suicide a natural cause? I don't know how they rank suicide, but it's very quickly ruled a homicide, and that does count. Okay. It ends up, like, between all three of the payouts um, coming up to $800,000. Oh, to Deborah. Shit. Yes. And that ends up being um, $2,187,000 in today's money. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, and does she get all his business? I don't know if she gets the business. So I think that maybe Vasi gets some part of the business or something because Deborah is completely uninterested in running the business. It's like, it's out of sight, out of mind, this place, but she does get the house. So she gets the mansion. And at that point, like after the dust settles and she's not exactly cleared of anything, but they don't have enough to charge her. So they're just kind of like, I guess we'll keep an eye on her, but there's nothing we can really do. Like she got the money, but she was entitled to the money and it seems legit. So I don't know. We're just at a standstill. They don't know why or how this happened. Um, And then her lover, John, moves into the mansion with her. You are lying. How soon after? Pretty, pretty soon after (laughs) he moves in. So he's living there with her. They have all of his money. They're living the high life. So three years later, it's 1985. And that was the year I was born. Oh, and I was one. Oh, murder. Actually, where were you? you were born in Ohio? I was born in Alabama, but then I was in um, Chicago shortly after. Like I was in Chicago and yes. later in, in um, 85. So you didn't even know that you were about to move to a place where a murder was about to be solved. Not only a murder, but a car stereo salesman. The car stereo king of Chicago. The Abe Froman of... <laughs> A car stereos, obviously. So <clears throat> three years later, the case has gone cold. And in 1985, um, at this point, John and Deborah have broken up and she's kicked him out of the mansion. Did they have a tennis court at the mansion? Because I feel like that would have been really convenient. <laughs> I have no idea, <laughs> but let's let's have them have one in our yeah, brain. We'll just pretend. Yes, yeah, so let's pretend. So um, at this point, they're no longer together. She's living in the mansion by herself and two ATF agents, which in case you don't know, because I did not, are alcohol, tobacco, and firearms agents. Yeah. They're investigating uh, this guy, Ken Canell, for unrelated gun charges. And while they're searching his home, they find 
bullets in the ceiling of his basement that perfectly match the bullets that were found at the crime scene and in Werner Hartman. Okay. Okay. So we have this new guy who's in the mix. His name is Ken Kanell. And in his home, somehow, he has, uh, you know, these bullets that are matching the exact bullets that were used in the murder. And they find the MAC-10 when they're searching his home. So they're like, okay, how do we connect this guy? Well, it's pretty easy, actually. They find out during the time of the murder, Ken Kanell is a family friend of the Korobics, and he was actually living in the same home that John and Deborah were. So they were, he was living in John Korobik's parents' house. <laughs> yes, think about how terrible this house was. It's like John Korobik, his stripper mistress, who had previously been almost an heiress, and then this like older random guy who was a family friend who must have fallen on hard times. So as fucking well. random. So random. So so they they have this connection now. They know John Korobik. They have always felt like was connected with us because of Deborah, and now they have the murder weapon connected to John Korobik too. Um, but like Ken is like super a pro. He's not saying anything. They haul John in and they're like, look, we found the murder weapon. We know it's your buddy. Just tell us what happened. And they're saying nothing. They do something that I call they dummy up, which is basically I had a uh, Italian uncle who was really, really funny. He was a firefighter. And whenever his son, my cousin, was doing something bad or he was like trying to get out of trouble with his mom, he'd be like, hey, hey, buddy, dummy up. Hey, hey, dummy up, which means if you're about to incriminate yourself by talking more, just shut up. <laughs> oh, my God. Hilarious. I love that term. Yeah. So dummy up. They fucking dummy up. They don't say shit. So the detectives are like, we know these are the motherfuckers. They planned this murder for sure. And so they go back to square one and they're like, every time you're basically fucked in a case, the most important thing you can do is follow the money. So. Obviously, Deborah got the most money in this situation. So they're like, let's go back to the insurance agent that like signed off on these claims, right? And maybe okay. can fill us in on the information. Okay. So they go and they get this guy, Harvey Lockton, who is the insurance agent on all of the claims. And they start putting yeah, some pressure on him. Yeah, because he has to him. go like interview her and shit, doesn't he? Yeah, exactly. Like she, they have to prove that she was the rightful beneficiary of these claims. Yeah. So he has definitely met Deborah and signed off on all of this and made sure she got the check, et cetera. So he should know the case pretty intimately. So basically they noticed that on the three different claims that on one Werner's signature looks different on then the other two. And so they go to him and they press him hard. I mean, they're interrogating him. They're like, something doesn't seem right with this. This is really like weird. Like, did he sign these all in your presence? You know, we need to talk about this. And he fucking cracks like an egg. Stop. It's like wide open. This guy is nervous as fuck. And he just loses it. He spills his guts. And he's like, it's all was John and Deborah's idea. He implicates them completely. So Werner is changing all of the insurance claims to his daughters yeah which um, it should have been that way the entire time obviously <laughs> honestly really like it's crazy so so he's changing all of the beneficiaries to his daughters and deborah gets wind of this so she goes to harvey and she's like what do i have to do to make you change your mind about changing the beneficiary and he's like um, uh, and so she's like, I'll fuck you and I'll give you three grand. How do you feel about that? Holy shit. 100% he sold out 
his career, his livelihood, his integrity for a roll in the sheets and $3,000. I was going to say, how much is that now? Closer to $8,000. That's it? He had a boner for Deborah, obviously. (laughs) So basically, after he doesn't change things, he also, she gets him to write a new policy. So he only had two. And she gets him to write a new policy for $150,000 with the double indemnity clause. And this is the craziest, stupidest thing in the world. Now, he was cutting off all of her money at this point. So she didn't have a lot of money and she didn't want anything traced back to her. So to pay for the claim, she uses John Korobic credit card Stop. to pay for the new $150,000. Like, how stupid can you be? Oh. Vossi would have never done that. Vossi would have never done that. God bless Vossi. Yeah, where is she at during all this? Oh, well, apparently she was completely innocent in this. Like, I mean, I think that Deborah was like, what can I do to absolutely have the most solid alibi? I think she knew exactly where yeah. Vossi was, yeah. either from Warner or from one of the kids or something. She figured out where Vossi was going to be and showed up there and, like, kept making them go out further, drink yeah. more, yeah. have more fun. Um, For sure, Yeah. So this guy reveals this whole plot. And at this point, Werner calls Harvey and he's like, hey, I didn't get any paperwork that confirms that the beneficiaries were changed to my daughters and not Deborah. Can you make sure to send this paperwork over to me so I know for sure that they're taken care of? So Harvey's panics and he calls Deborah and he's like, hey, I have to give Warner something like I know that you told me I had to do this for you, but like, I don't know what I'm supposed to give him. I don't know what I'm supposed to do right now. And she's like, don't worry, I got it. I'll take care of it. So okay. Like, okay, sure. And so he essentially signs Warner's death warrant by warning uh, Deborah that he's going to be coming after the policies. She's like, I have like days to kill him basically. Because she needs to kill him before he can successfully change the policies, which if he comes down to Harvey's office and demands it, what is Harvey going to do? He can't just be like, oh, it's fine, you know? Yeah, no. No. So basically now Deborah, it, it puts the whole thing into motion where Deborah needs to kill him very soon. So the cops at this point are like, okay, we have motive and means, which is Deborah and John, and we know where the gun came from, which is Ken Kanell. But the rest of the evidence is still pretty iffy. Like, they're like, we still don't have any way of placing anyone other than Deborah in the home. And, of course, her DNA was all over that place anyway. And, yeah. like, DNA wasn't that great in 1982. There was, it, It's just, like, it's impossible to figure out exactly who was there. And none of these three people are saying anything. Like, okay. they are all dummying up. So. They're like, okay, we know that they did insurance fraud because they have the word of Harvey Lockton. Yeah. So they're like, for sure that they like fucked around with insurance and kind of the mail too, because how Deborah found out about the change of policy was she like intercepted uh, Werner's mail. So at this point, they're like, let's go the Al Capone route. So I told you there's some mob tie in here. Yep, yep, yep. Yep. And so basically with Al Capone, when they couldn't nail him for murder and some other gang activities, they ended up busting him for tax evasion. Yep. And that was just so they could get him in prison. And they were like, okay, let's do like the same type of thing, which is now seems like a Chicago tradition. (laughs) Um, And they charged Deborah, John, and Ken 
on 30 counts of mail and wire fraud for the insurance forgery in conjunction with conspiracy to commit murder. Okay. Yeah. So this is like the best that they can do. They think this is like what the, you know, the DA thinks that they can get them on. So the trial starts in 1990 and the prosecutor's story that they're telling is everything that I've told you up until now, only they believe that John is the one who actually pulled the trigger. Really? Yeah. So their theory on this is that it seemed a little iffy as to when he actually left the couple's house. And the husband said like they had hung out somewhere later, but it's not really clear if they hung out later or not. They don't really trust his alibi. And even if the alibi was tight, he still could have performed the murder in the window. So they're like, he is the one who has time. Also, there was a neighbor boy who said like during this period of time, he saw a man leave the house after Deborah had already been there. So there's no reason anyone should have been in the house who looked like he was six, two or taller. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's obviously yeah, hit the nail on the head. Yeah, exactly. So they had a witness that in the neighborhood who saw him. So they're like, it, it absolutely was a lover. He had motive. We have an eyewitness who saw, who couldn't really identify um, John from a lineup because it was really dark, but he could say, see how like tall the person was, you know? Yeah. Um, also at this point they have, uh, Deborah's brother testify against John. Deborah's brother has been in trouble with the law on and off. Like this is an extremely troubled family and he had been hit up with some burglary charges. Okay. And I think in exchange for a lenient sentence, he had worked for the DA to say that John had told him he killed Werner. Okay. So, so this is like, this is from him, but at the same time, it's a little like you don't know if you have a slam dunk case because you have a guy who's saying hearsay and he also has me like a motive for saying that like he wants to get a lesser charge on his burglary charges you know of course yeah burglary <laughs> burglary charges yes so so that is all the evidence against John now John's attorney says that the trigger man is Ken they say that uh Ken there's proof that Ken was going around asking people if they would be a hitman for x amount of dollars so Ken was like actively seeking out a hitman to kill Werner. So John's attorney is like, the, the the DA has this all wrong. It wasn't John. It was Ken. It He has the murder weapon. They say that, that Ken's motive was money because they were going to pay him money or they did pay him money from the insurance payout. So obviously they knew John would be a suspect. So they didn't want they wanted Deborah and John to have really good alibis. Nobody would suspect Ken. Ken was going to get the weapon. He was going to do the crime. There's um, a witness that uh, John's defense finds that says, oh, yeah, Ken was asking people around if somebody could do the murder, and then he decided just to do it himself. Huh. So there is conflicting testimony, and we never really find out exactly who pulled the trigger. I, I think it was John, though. I really do. Well, if someone but saw a I, tall dude going in the house, how tall was Ken? I don't know how tall Ken was, but I don't think he was as tall as John. Yeah, and was I, it I, notable? It wasn't notable. He wasn't notably tall. I also think that um, Ken still could have been involved as, like, the getaway driver. I, I think that they were all in cahoots somehow, and... I definitely think Ken was involved. His alibi was his wife, but there was some questions of the veracity of her alibi because she was like maybe just protecting her husband. Yeah. yeah, Duh. Yeah, for sure. So anyway, they all get 
the max that they possibly can for these this mail fraud. So Harvey locked in the insurance guy. Yep. He gets a deal for squealing, basically. Two years. That's all he gets. When he basically was like, helped orchestrate the entire thing. Holy shit. So he gets two years. Um, I'm sure he like, never got a good job again, though. You know? I'm really curious about what his life path was. Well, this is the crazy thing. I could not find anything about any of these people because they are all out of jail as of now. I don't know. They're probably not all still alive. So Ken Kanale gets 20 years. Okay, what about John? Johnny boy? John gets 16 years. Okay, but you know what's the worst? What? Deborah is sentenced to 22 years, but she only serves 12. What? Isn't that insane? But does she get any money? Um, I think that there was a lawsuit involved with his daughters, and I think that there was some sort of settlement that they came to about the daughters getting it. Okay, good. Um, because I don't think that you can, and I could be completely wrong, <laughs> I, I don't know if you kill the person you're allowed to collect, especially the double indemnity insurance <laughs> policy, because it's like you cause the unnatural death, you know? Um, Really? Yeah, so <laughs> she only gets uh, 12 years. Okay. Yeah, I think she gets really some and good behavior, and they parole her because there was never any evidence that she was the one who killed him. Of course, yeah. And, you know, and she could even say, and I don't know what she said in her parole boards, but, I, I mean, she could even say, like, my lover went crazy. I didn't have anything to do with this. I'm so sad. Or a lot of times parole boards really like to hear that, like, maybe you did have something to do with it, but you're deeply sorry and you regret your actions and you've, like, they really want you to take responsibility for your actions. I'm always curious about that, though. Like, if you do take responsibility for something that you denied in court, are you then, can you be prosecuted on that? No, not if you've already served your time. Okay. You know, and also, and by taking responsibility, you're not saying, I orchestrated killing him. You would just say something wordy like, my role in what ultimately caused his demise, I yeah. take full responsibility for, you know. So the craziest thing is that she is released on September 27th. 2002. So what? Man, we were like kind of adults for this when she got out. So I Googled her and I looked up everything I could. I looked up like public records in Chicago. I don't know where she went afterwards, but she could still be alive today. She could have gotten remarried. I, there was like a bunch of Deborah Hartman's on Facebook that I like perused, but then I was like, would she have kept his last name? So her maiden name was Stover. I would love it if anyone can find out what happened to Deborah Stover Hartman. Um, I would be eternally grateful because I am so Yeah, curious. there's a lot of, I'm shocked about how many Deborah Stovers there are. There really are. So I did do a quick perusal of everyone who's like in the age range, like in the Midwest. And I was like, I don't, she's not going to put on her Facebook profile. Like I killed my husband and got away with it. <laughs> that would be so wrong. Yes. I shot a man and I won. I like how you automatically have like a Texan twang. A twang. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that is the story. So the car stereo king of Chicago. I started in your, in your kind of, not your birthplace, but your childhood residence. I also am so curious about like what percentile of the stories that we speak about are going to have some sort of life insurance play. Oh God, so many. I mean, if we're focusing on 
murder between spouses, especially, there's going to be so much in life insurance fraud. <laughs> so much, right? Also, I'm yeah. not going to lie. This chick kind of looks like Michelle Williams in the picture with her, oh, with her sunglasses on. Yes, I would say Michelle Williams would play her in a movie. I, I don't actually look up what um, John Corbett looks like, I but... I feel like maybe he looked more like Pete Sampras, but I'm like thinking that because he was a tennis pro. <laughs> oh my God, hilarious. So based on this picture of John Korobic, he's like handsome, but he's no, he's no Liam. Yeah. He's, Let's see. Let's see if I can find him. I'll send you a screenshot. Perfect. Yeah, I see the guy on the bottom. He's the guy on the bottom. Who would you say he looks like? You know who could play him would be the guy, like the boring guy, Jim from The Office. A little bit, like yeah. a little bit, like darker hair, darker yeah. eyes, because he doesn't yeah. have blue eyes. But you could see John Krasnicki playing him, mm-hmm. and she definitely does look like, she looks like like Oksana Bayul meets Michelle Williams. Yeah, for sure. I mean, she's like chic in those Ray-Bans and that mink coat. <laughs> she's got it going on. You know, maybe she got out and she felt the error of her ways, and she lived a good life after that and was like kind and decent to people. Hey, Let's just hope. Anything's possible. Well, that's our first episode. Yeah, that's it. Okay. That's it. So, guys, we haven't figured out exactly what our social media is going to be yet. We'll tell you next episode. Oh, we have. I just made one. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll tell so, you because I don't know. So <laughs> I'm also finding out. Our website is lovemurder.love. All right. Well, that's it. So, yeah, feel free to follow us. Um, I'm going to set up a Twitter at some point and I would love to hear suggestions of your favorite love triangle murders or any murders you'd like to hear about from us. Yeah, hopefully you're not involved in it. (laughs) Ooh, oh, I don't know. Maybe we should get a first-hand account. (laughs) Thank you, everybody, for listening to our very first Love Murder podcast. I hope you all stay safe. Do not marry a murderer. And for sure, don't let them get an insurance policy on you.